And I came home that afternoon and found a lightness to my spirit that I didn't know could exist during COVID. My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on, but you still live. You know, the spirit is still here. They tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome, everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm Cami Ahrens, your host, and welcome to season four. I cannot believe that we are on our fourth season already. Thank you so much to all of you who have stuck with us since the beginning and been with us and been patient as we worked through a number of technical difficulties and as we learned um, more about this process and producing a podcast. If you are just now joining us, welcome. Thank you so much for finding our podcast. And I hope you enjoy the stories that we have to share from the Foxfire archives and from oral history interviews that we conduct now. Pretty excited about this year. We've got some great interviews lined up to share with you. And to kick it off this year, we are taking a listen to an interview that I conducted back in November with um, my friend and colleague Lily Knapp of Blue Ridge Public Radio as part of our COVID Oral History Partner Project. Back in early March of 2020, in response to the shutdown, we launched a crowdsourced oral history project, which has since grown into a um, full partnership with Blue Ridge Public Radio to collect oral histories, documents, pictures um, from the region that capture our experiences during the pandemic. This interview is a little bit different, but I find it very inspiring and just in time as we all start to put our minds towards um, planning our spring and summer gardens. So we received an inquiry from a woman named Mignon Durham about her very own COVID project, which um, is a garden that she calls Devotion. And so during COVID, she really took the time to capture a multi-year process of designing and building a native um, and non-native species uh, landscaped garden around her home um, outside of Asheville, North Carolina. As she expresses in this interview, COVID really gave her the time to slow down and to think about um, the experiences she had and how she might be able to share them with others. And so the result of her COVID project was to actually self-publish a book about her garden. That that book is called um, Devotion, and it's really beautiful garden book that's got um, a lot of really relatable stories in it, I think, in terms of our experiences gardening and and going through, you know, just any learning process, really. Um, But she also shares some really great information about working with different types of plants and specifically um, native species. So Lily and I, um, along with a board member from Foxfire, who's an avid gardener, (laughs) traveled out to Asheville to meet with Mignon and um, see her garden and to just hear more about her experiences. And, you know, as all things that Lily and I seem to do together, we start unraveling the pieces of a larger story that um, is woven into the fabric of Western North Carolina and really Southern Appalachia in general. So come to find out, Mignon actually served on the board for Penland School of Craft, which we referenced back in our interview with Louise Morgan Runyon, 
who's related to Lucy and Rufus Morgan. And Lucy Morgan was actually the one who established Penland, if you remember. All these really interesting ties, again, that just make up the fabric of the community that we live in. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And if you're interested in learning more about Mignon's garden and her book, we'll have those links available for you on our website. I'm Mignon Durham, and we are in Pinner's Cove, which is the southern edge of Asheville, North Carolina. We are sitting by Robinson Creek, which flows the length of my property. The headwaters of Robinson Creek is at the top of Busby Mountain, which is still owned by the Cecil family, the Vanderbilts. This property, uh, when I bought it in 2012, I named it Devotion. And I had no idea where my life was going to take me uh, as it relates to the uh, garden and the woods that surround us. But um, I felt immediately at home. And we're surrounded by turkeys who are clucking up the hill from where we're sitting. Much of the uh, trees and flora around us uh, were here, but they were covered with invasive species like multiflora rose, bittersweet, poison ivy. And when I bought the property, you could hear the creek, but you couldn't see it. It was so overgrown. And I had no idea what would happen, but I knew that removing those invasive species was a high priority. And lo and behold, the first spring, about February, the trout lily and the bloodroot popped up, and I knew, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, clearing this land. And this place specifically, um, you know, we asked you to take us to the place that meant the most to you during COVID, during the pandemic, when you've been here on this property. Tell us what it is about where we're sitting that, that meant so much to you during that time. I had friends um, live with me much of the summer of 2020, and it it was so wonderful having company. And we would sit down here every afternoon and have a cup of tea or, in my case, a cup of coffee. But we would hear the creek. We would see um, the wildflowers that were blooming, the hummingbirds coming by. And there's a tree across the creek that is full of woodpecker holes. And so we would watch the woodpeckers come and go. And um, one day Jason was sitting down here by himself and there was a huge thud and um, a large black racer fell out of the tree and started chasing a rabbit. Um, So we have the turkeys come by. we, have, we had the bear come by further up the hill uh, one afternoon. Uh, it was a little nerve-wracking, but he just kept on walking through. So nature happens here, and there goes the red-tailed hawk. <laughs> he just flew out of his tree. Um, so sitting here is a, a place where I get restored, where I find hope, uh, against all odds of what I read in the newspaper. So this is, this is my happy place. What do you think it is about nature and this space specifically that enables you to find that hope? And how do you think that it brought you and your friends together during that time? Um, what, what solace does nature actually offer you? What I've learned about gardening is it's a huge physical labor, 
But the real reward comes when you allow yourself the time to sit down and witness what's around you. And in witnessing it, it's with your eyes, it's with your ears, it's with your nose, and even with your taste. Being here, being outdoors, is a place to shut out the chaos, the noise, the hyperactivity of the world around us. And I live aware of where the sun rises and where it sets, what time, it, what time of day it is by the sun. And I know so many people who can't tell you where south is. And my whole house is built, predicated on where south is. Being in nature just makes me feel that I belong and that I've created a relationship with these critters and these plants around me. And because I see the birds and the butterflies and the bees come back, it's like they're saying, thank you. So it's a real relationship. When we talk about Appalachia, we often talk about this relationship aspect, you know, this really close-knit relationship with the land and the communities around you. I know you grew up in a more urban setting. Um, so what made you choose Appalachia? Do you feel Appalachian? Do you feel that there's something special about this region specifically? There is um, the singing of the angels that happens to me when I drive up to Penland School of Craft. And that was my first real in-depth um, digging deep into Appalachia. And a friend, uh, Jim Haynes, took me to a board meeting so I would understand what Penland School was all about. But you go up this winding road and you get to the top and it just opens up uh, in front of you. And I didn't know how, but I knew my life was going to change because of Penland. And ultimately, I moved there. But then it was a matter of knowing my from-here neighbors and my not-from-here artist friends who had moved into the area. And while I don't think I will ever be considered to be a true Appalachian by the Appalachian people, I believe that uh, we value each other. Uh, we have the same respect uh, for the differences in our lives, but the, the things that we have in common. And so I, I will live my last day in, in these mountains. When Cammie and I talk about Appalachia, we think a lot about community. And I know that um, a lot of people find community in the wilderness, but it's also about the people that you connect with and the people who are part of the Appalachian region. You know, you've built this this beautiful location for yourself that's, you know, also still isolated. So how do you think about your connection to the community um, here in this region? When I think about Appalachian community, it is much more diverse and richer than the stereotypes that you read about. There are people uh, that lived close to me, when, especially when I was at Penland, who would take me foraging for mushrooms. There were people who would put a bottle of moonshine on my back porch. Um, there were artists who welcomed me to their studios. And I find when you meet anybody on their terms and are curious about their life, they'll welcome you. And m my neighbors uh, where I was living 
I felt they were family. We looked after each other. So there are many ways that I feel I connected and created community. And my, this is the best part of my life. But um, I got to meet some of the Penland artists while I was still living in Winston-Salem. And to have these incredibly talented, smart, uh, well-traveled people take you in as a friend just made me feel so happy. It, it, it was a source of great gratitude. And um, then I felt I, I needed to give back to them. Um, but being with um, the artists safely in Winston-Salem, but then ultimately moving to Penland, uh, it was the greatest gift ever. And the artists give so much to the community, whether they're performing artists or visual artists. They are always giving back to the community, and they are a real thread to connecting diverse parts of the community together. So one piece of what brought us here today was you reaching out after hearing us talk about um, Annette Clapsaddle's book, and it's because you've written your own book during COVID about this place that you've built and how it impacted you during the pandemic. Um, actually, writing the book was not my idea. A dear friend, Wade Shelton, called me and said, I have a suggestion and you can take it or leave it but you need to write a book. And I said, Wade, what am I going to write about? And he said, you need to write about your garden. And I was, we were on the phone, and it wasn't FaceTime, so I was rolling my eyes and thinking, oh, what a dumb idea. But I was very polite. And when we hung up, the idea of writing a book would not leave my head. And one day I was on a really tough uphill bicycle ride, and I all I wanted to do was get off that bicycle. But I started talking to myself, and I said, why don't you go home and write a chapter? You don't have to tell anybody. And if you hate writing, you don't have to write a book. You can just throw it away. But go home and try it. And I came home that afternoon and found a lightness to my spirit that I didn't know could exist during COVID. And I also know my personality is such that had I not been forced to be still, I could never have written a book. So I had a great blessing from COVID. It, it forced me to be still, to be home. I knew writing the book that there'd be a time when I'd actually have the book in hand. Um, then what? Well, I was sort of dreading this. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to go talk to people. I've got to promote myself. What I have found in, I think it's now three weeks since I've had the book, is the warmest encouragement and support from independent bookstores, from the Botanical Garden, from the Arboretum, from gardens across the state, independent retailers. So I feel really excited that I've created a book that's beautiful, that imparts information, whether you're coming at it from an art point of view or a horticulture point of view. You know, I think a lot of the book goes into a lot of the details about building your home, building this garden, um, kind of the the long design process and everything that went into it. And I think sometimes when we talk about you know being more eco conscious, being more um, 
in thinking about how we're spending our money, I think some of that comes with with the privilege of uh, being able to focus on that over you know other things. How do you think about that relationship um, as you've you've built your garden and your home and and you're trying to to share this advice with the community? I feel the greatest privilege to be at a place in my life where I could do this, both from a physical point of view as well as a financial point of view. But I feel a great responsibility to share what I've learned. And whether I'm talking about the LEED certification on my house or why I'm adding solar panels uh, to generate more electricity, which we just finished yesterday, um, I feel a great responsibility to share that information. And I've been studying and reading about environmental issues for 20 years now. And I sort of take some of my knowledge for granted, but there are other people who are just beginning to pay attention, you know, with all the climate change going on around us. um, They're just beginning to pay attention. So um, I felt it was a responsibility because of my privilege. For those who may not have gardens or access to, you know, a lot of green spaces, especially in urban areas, what pieces of advice can you offer them to find the same sort of healing and peace and calm that you've been able to achieve here? I think everybody can put a pot out on their patio if they have no green space whatsoever. Um, They can put a pot out and put some cone flour or some milkweed, and they will be sustaining the butterflies and the birds and the bees. Um, If you have a yard of grass, start thinking about how to reduce the amount of just grass that you have. That does nothing to support the diversity of wildlife. And think of all the labor and time and money you spend mowing the grass and fertilizing the grass. Uh, You're using fossil fuels and the phosphates are washing into the creeks. So if you can just reduce your grass, if you can put one or two pots out, um, any, anything you do makes a difference. And a dear, uh, uh, I, I would like to call him a colleague, but he's so far ahead of me. His name is Doug Tallamy, and he's at the University of Delaware. And he's just created this program called uh, Backyard National Park. And everybody, no matter how much space they have, can be on his map and say what I've done to create a a wilder, more diverse space around my house. And, you know, my 2.77 acres is not going to change the world. But if there are a million 2.77 acres, we will change the world. I think we've we've talked about this in a couple different ways, but um, throughout the pandemic, we really saw huge numbers of people going out into the woods. I think the Great Smoky Mountain National Park had over 12 million visitors. And really this ability to explore, which is what you're talking about with the pathways through the woods, is is just such a, a piece of that forest. Um, I recently did a story with the, the volunteer coordinator at the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and kind of the other side of that is they had about just over a hundred thousand hours of volunteer service to kind of keep up the park. How do you think about the balance of exploration and, you know, community and, and healing in the forest? 
Well, I think having volunteers get connected, whether it's to the Great Smokies or to Conserving Carolinas, um, it is a wonderful way that they can expand the scope of their mission. And without those volunteers, we wouldn't have the Hickory Nut Gorge miles of trails that we have. The Great Smoky Mountains um, benefits from these volunteers who then talk to their friends and family about what they're doing. So volunteerism is really important. I do worry about how wild we're going to be able to keep places. And that story is is repeat history when you read about uh, the creation of the Appalachian Trail. The two men fought vigorously about this is supposed to be remote and nobody there and this this other belief that oh it's about settling there and creating community around this hiking trail so how do we keep these sacred spaces wild and and I must say there's bad behavior out there in the public uh litter and um picking plant material, not paying attention to staying on paths when they've indicated that there's some rare plant species out there. So I think it's all a matter of continuing to um, inform and get people connected uh, to organizations or to hiking groups where they can be shown the rules of the road and uh, protected because I think everybody needs to get out into the wild. Would you mind reading part or all of the poem that's at the end of the book that's about you? I must tell you that I still cry when I read that poem. The title of the poem is Reverence. Only people with excuses are walking spring's weekday. Men with Labradors, women carriage strolling, and poets holding metaphors. But the gardener on Robinson Creek Road marches wheelbarrows, cradles bulbs and roots, cups fresh looms will never hold. She named tulip poplars for me once, Magnolia Sulangiana outside the Carl Sandburg house, twinned like Cynthia and Edwina. An acuary, we once breathed in Himalayan poppies whose blue pulses were too soft to count. More powerful than the bells from bells, each were sermons spoken by the earth, bettering all of us because she knows enough to kneel. That was beautiful. I, I don't know if you've heard our other podcast, but kind of one of the, the first pieces we did for this COVID series was about um, Rufus Morgan and Penland and Lucy Morgan. And it just feels like we're having continuing to have these same conversations about, you know, what is the future of the wilderness of Western North Carolina? Um, something that people have cared so much about for such a long time. And it seems like this will be a conversation we'll continue to have. The, the, the threads of Western North Carolina are the craft, nature, and Penland, John C. Campbell, uh, the Great Smoky Mountains. Those are legendary stories uh, the building of the Blue Ridge Parkway, the, the construction of the Appalachian Trail, we are so blessed. And I don't think anybody can live here and not experience all of those things eventually.
Yeah, let's walk a little. Now the I know the plants are still a little confused, blooming, but also turning colors. And That's everything. right. That's right. And I hate to see the hosta turn brown because um, they they basically become shrubs. They're so large in the summertime. But I need four seasons, and so to see the plants go through their natural cycle is exciting to me. And like this Japanese maple right here, it's a dwarf called Akakawa Haimi. And the leaves are this chartreuse green all in the summer. But once it drops the leaves, the bark starts turning red. And so this is a red sculpture by my front door, which is red uh, in the wintertime. So it's, it's really quite special to me. And this plant here is another um, special plant. It's called Fathergilla, and its variety is Blue Shadow. And I think plants need to function in as many seasons as they possibly can. So what you're witnessing is the beginning of the fall color, which is quite extraordinary. But then in early spring, before any leaves come back out, there'll be white bottle brush flowers all over the plant. And then they drop, and then these leaves come out, and the leaves are blue. And so that's why it's called blue shadow. And when raindrops hold onto the blue leaves, it's magical. It's just magical. And then you look through there, and you see the golds, and the browns, and the reds. And all of it is highlighted by this range of uh, rose bay magnolia uh, rhododendron um, that surround my property and there's something about that green backdrop those dark green leaves that make the fall color explode even more yeah. and hopefully people know this but that's because rhododendrons are evergreens <laughs> they are evergreens they certainly are and this is odd because i'm not a botanist but the uh, rhododendrons and azaleas are in the same family, and um, I don't understand it, but there's some genetic reason that they are, uh, and they're all called rhododendrons, um, but the azaleas can be evergreen or deciduous, so go figure. <laughs> and this is my beloved Franklinia tree. Um, you can see where the bud are finishing up for the year. They bloom a beautiful white bloom in August when you're so hot and tired and everything else in your garden is so tired. Um, beautiful, beautiful bloom. But then look at this fall color. It's, it's just amazing. And, and I think about being connected to John and William Bartram and it, it makes me sort of cry uh, that, that we're all connected in some way or other through nature. And this uh, row of shrubs right here uh, is called chokeberry, aronia, and you can see the red berries on it. Last February, when I was sitting in my office writing this book, that's my office window right across from the aronia, I witnessed at least a hundred birds land on these shrubs and start eating those berries. I had never seen this bird before, but there was a yellow spot that you can't miss. And I looked it up and they were cedar wax wings. Oh my gosh, it was like going to church. 
I was just sitting here watching these birds and they devoured the berries, sat in the trees, and I'm told the berries are somewhat fermented by the time they eat them. And so it's kind of like having a drink. And so the birds sat up in these trees and I guess sort of collected their senses again and then they flew off. The next day they were in the back of the property eating the uh, winterberry hollyberries. Berries all gone and I haven't seen them since. So I'm really excited to see one if I will be observant enough to witness them coming back and if they'll remember where they got fed. <laughs> devotion I have church bells <laughs> and it just takes the slightest breeze to set them off that sound is reminding me that nature is my church Well, thank you all again for joining us for this first episode of season four. Again, we've got some really great content coming at you this year. So please um, keep checking back. Make sure you subscribe. Um, share this podcast with a friend. Get caught up on all the episodes that you might not have listened to yet. And make sure to send us um, your thoughts. What do you want to hear more about? Um, what's been your favorite thing to listen to so far? You can always reach us at um, itstilllives at foxfire.org. You can message us on Instagram or Facebook, and that's the main Foxfire account. That's um, at Foxfire.org as well. And if you're interested in um, learning more about Mignon's work and seeing her pictures of her garden and getting a copy to her book, all of that's linked on our website. And also find the transcript for this episode, and that's www.foxfire.org. If you navigate over to the menu, um, you'll see a podcast option, or you can scroll down to the bottom of the page, and it'll link you directly to that post. Thanks so much, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>